There's a mitzvah in the Torah as described in this week's parasha to establish a king, a Jewish king. What's interesting about the king is that the Rashba tells us that the entire community relies on the king. And the Rambam tells us that the king is the heart of the Jewish people. And that's what we're going to question. Why the heart? Surely if the king is the top of the hierarchy, who provides for the Jewish people, who controls the entire nation, surely he should be compared to the brain. In fact, the truth is we talk about a Nasi, which is a leader, not even of the caliber of a king, and we call him the head of the Jewish people. So why is that? And what we'll do is we'll look at the difference between the primary role of the Nasi, which is very spiritual or legal, versus the primary role of the king, which is providing for the community and political. And that creates a paradox for the king, as we'll see, that the king on the one hand is in charge of everything and can even take everything from the community, and on the other hand is completely reliant on the community. And that will talk to the idea of the heart of community rather than the brain. The brain has to be subjective, a little bit aloof, removed, and tell us what the law is. The heart has to feel the community and has to guide and care for the community. That's actually what a king is. Although we'll see that certain individuals, special individuals, are able to harmonize both. Soim Tosim Olech Omelech, the Torah tells us you shall surely appoint a king over yourself. It's in this week's parasha. So speaking of a king, the Rashba writes in his response about a king, the king is comparable to the entire community, because the entire community, in fact the entire Jewish nation, depends on him. We have a similar reference in the Medrash Tanchoma, which says, that the head of the generation is the entire generation. And as Rashi says, and we know this very well, that the primary leader of the Jewish people is compared to the entire generation because the Nasi is everything. So there you have it. The king, in a sense, represents and incorporates the entire Jewish people. But the Rambam says something interesting. He says that the king's heart is the heart of the entire Jewish nation. Now it sounds at first glance like it's the same message, but we'll see a distinction. The obvious reason why we would say that the king is the heart of the Jewish people is because just like the entire vitality of the human body depends on the heart, pumping blood, oxygenated blood into the body, so too, so it must be the same thing with the king. The entire community relies, depends on the king for their survival as the Rashba had said. The only thing is that that raises a question. Yes, it's true that every organ and limb in the body gets its vitality from the heart. But what makes the body function is the brain. The brain tells your hand to move, your ears to hear, your eyes to look. So yes, you could call the heart the king in a relative sense, king relative to the other limbs, as opposed to the brain that is called king over all of the limbs and organs, heart included. 
which raises a, a very obvious question. So then why would we compare the king who is there to guide and direct the people? As the Pasuk says, people, he'll take them out into whatever they have to do, confront enemies. He'll bring them in to make sure that they're cared for. Like the king's role is like a shepherd over his flock. Why would we compare that lelev kol kalisol to the heart? The heart is not in charge of the entire body, and the king is. Seems like a mismatch. Now, in Torah language, we find that a king is sometimes referred to by the term nasi, even though it directly translates as a prince. We sometimes refer to it as a king. Like, for example, here when the Pasuk says, Asher nasi yecheto, when the nasi shall do an avera, who's the nasi? So both the Sifra commenting on that Pasuk and the Mishnah elsewhere tells us that the nasi over here refers to the king. As the, the, the explanation that is given goes, that he has no one who is a higher authority. He is the highest authority. In fact, we even find Moshiach, who is the ultimate king, referred to in the prophets as a Nasi. So even though sometimes we call the king Nasi, on a simple level, at face value, we assume that the term Melech, king, is the highest title that you could ever give. As opposed to Nasi, which might refer to the head of the Sanhedrin, it might refer to the head of the, a particular Shevet, etc. As we've already seen, Rashi says that the Nasi of a generation is comparable to the entire generation. So, that only strengthens the question we've already asked. How does it make sense? That the king who is higher, who is at the top of the hierarchy, over the head of the Nasi, why call him the heart and not the head? If he is there's no superior authority to him besides Hashem, he should be the head. So to understand this, we've got to understand pragmatically what's the difference between the role of a Melech and the role of a Nasi. We'll understand this by first looking at the In the language of Chazal, there's a very major distinction between referring to a king or referring to a Nasi. A king is a king, as the Torah says. There are no alternatives. A king is a king. Whereas a Nasi, generally when used just as an ordinary term without any accolades or without any adjectives, the Nasi is the head of the Sanhedrin. If not the head of the Sanhedrin, then at least Nasi bin Yonim Ruchnim, he is the spiritual supreme authority. Sorry, Mishnah. As the Mishnah tells us that you get Nasi, Vav based in two roles in terms of the spiritual leadership of the community. The Nasi is, in a sense, the supreme spiritual leader. The based in is the chief justice. We refer to Hillel, who was the spiritual head of the Jewish people, as Nasi. 
או הלל ושמן חולי נוהג נשיאוס בפני הבייס מהשונו, like the Gemara describes when it is that הלל was the נוסי, etc. או שמן הצדק, whoever. What's important about that is that the time where they lived, they were kings. Kings that were accepted as kings by Jewish law. Yes, they might not have been kings from um, base Yehuda, from David's lineage, but they were authentic kings. And yet at the same time, there's a Nasi. That tells you different roles. The king is the king, and the Nasi has a spiritual leadership role. In fact, the distinction between these two roles plays out in halacha. The nasi is allowed to say, I, I give up. You don't have to give me respect. I surrender my kavod. You don't have to stand for me, whatever the case is. Whereas, whereas the king is not entitled to compromise on his honor. So if there's a clear distinction between the term melech and the term nasi, then if we can refer to a king both as a melech and as a nasi, it must be that we're referring to different elements of his position and of his role. Let's look at some of those differences. If we look in the language of Chazal, we'll see the following distinctions. The primary role of a king is to keep a justice system, see that justice is served, and to wage wars on behalf of the community. Or as the Pasuk said, to bring them in or bring them out, take them out to war, bring them into a place of safety, bring them into a consolidated, healthy society. But the king doesn't paskin. The king doesn't sit in judgment. His job is to ensure that justice is carried out, not to decide what the particular uh, justice or judgment should be. As we know in Halacha, it's brought both in the Gemara as it's brought in the Rambam, that a king from the lineage of Yisrael may not sit on a court, and even the kings from the Davidic lineage who are permitted to sit in judgment on the community don't get included in the Sanhedrin. Ah, you'll ask, but you just told me that the king is Yetnaas, who is Oise Mishpat, he makes judgment, and now you've just told him, but he cannot judge. What on earth does that mean? When we say that a king's role is to make judgment, we're not talking about the fact that he should um, cross-examine witnesses or that he should sit and deliberate over what the judgment should be. His responsibility is to see the execution of justice, which means to ensure that whatever the based in rules is carried out. Or there are certain emergency situations where a king is allowed extra judicial authority, where he can make sure that, let's say, there's a crime wave and the base is not allowed to prosecute, the king can to ensure that there is law and order in society. So the primary role of the king is to ensure that we live in a just and safe society. But when we talk about a Nasi, a name given by the Chachamim, 
His primary role is to sit at the head of the justice system. Let's see how the Rambam says it. Out of all the judges on the Sanhedrin, the one that has the greatest wisdom, they appoint him as their highest authority, as their supreme leader, so to speak. He is the one who sits at the head of the, he presides over the entire court. And he is the one, says the Rambam, who our Chachamim called the Nasi. He is the modern replacement or uh, heir to Moshe Rabbeinu's position. And the Rambam is very clear. What is the role of the Sanhedrin? They are the pillars of instruction. They are the ones who decide what the legal parameters of life are going to be. So the king helps to execute the law. The Sanhedrin decides the law. So the Nasi is in the space of deciding the law. The Moshe and every other Nasi is that Moshe was also a shepherd of the Jewish people and he also looked after their, their needs, their food, their protection, etc., things that ordinarily a king would do. But fundamentally, the king's job is to protect the nation and to ensure that they have what they need to succeed. And the Nasi's job is to make sure that we have a law that we could live by. Number two, base. Melech, this is a fascinating insight that the Rebbe is going to give us now, and it will create a huge paradox that will actually help us to understand the unique role and position of a Jewish king, and how a Jewish king is quite distinct from all other kings. The nature of a king is that the king relies on and can insist on that the community should supply everything that he needs, even by force. Like the Rambam tells us in great detail, with regards to a king, he's allowed to take the most powerful men and take them into his army. He's allowed to take people's animals and make them his cavalry. He can take people and appoint them as his servants to run ahead of his entourage. He's allowed to take the, the people with skills and help them, and make them help him with his war effort or whatever else he needs. But is allowed to take people's property, just like that. is allowed to, and he gets ten percent of all produce in the country. You'll, you'll remember this from Shmuel Hanavi telling the Jewish people, "Oh, you want a king? Do you understand what a king is going to mean? Do you understand the tax on the community to have a king?" Well, that's what the Rambam says. La the king has everything that he needs supplied to him by the community. That's not the case with a nasi. A nasi is on a salary. Of course, he is an official of the community, so he is therefore supported financially by the community. But that's a fixed salary that he gets for the job that he does to serve the community. He's not like a king. Where the king can... Today, decide it needs X from the community, and the community has to supply it, and tomorrow he could decide that it needs Y, and the community will have to supply it too. So one of the big distinctions, King's role is to look after the well-being of his citizens, and the Nazi's role is to make sure that the spiritual and judicial systems are healthy. The king has absolute carte blanche to take whatever he needs from the community, and the Nazi is on a salary. 
And here's where we get to the paradox. The fact that the king can take as he pleases from the community creates a huge paradox. On one hand, it tells us, wow, look how powerful he is. He can take whatever he wants from the nation. Until everybody in the community is similar to the principle of Masha Kono Evet Kono Raboy, that whatever a slave acquires is automatically the property of his master. It feels the same way. Whatever the nation has is at the disposal of the king. Because he can take whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases. On the one hand, on the other hand, yet that shows us paradoxically a certain weakness that the king has compared to any other citizen of the country. Because it shows us that whatever the king wants, he relies on others to supply for him. Any other member of the nation gets what they have because they earn it. So if you have a wealthy member of the community, he's earned his wealth, it's his, at his disposal. He has a certain strength because of that. Even that official, like the Nasi, who's appointed by and uh, looked after by the community, at the end of the day, still, he's being productive. He's offering a service, and therefore, he's receiving payment. Whereas the king, whatever he has in his life, depends on the community. They have to agree to give it to him. I mean, by law, they're required to agree, but the fact is, whatever he has comes from them. Nothing is self-generated. He's not somebody who can go out and start his little sideline business. And that's interesting because that shows us this unique position of a king. That's the whole cup of a king. The entire purpose of a king, his entire life is his entire life is a life of service. Service to the people. That's beginning and end. That's what his whole life is. See how distinct it is? The monarch in classical literature is the person who's the fat cat who sits at the top and everybody else serves him. But the Jewish king is absolutely, fully dedicated to the people all of the time. Which is why he receives from the people everything that he needs. And that's why we compare, in the Rambam's words, we compare the king to the heart and not to the brain. Because there's a significant distinction between the brain and the heart in their function, in their temperament, and in either intelligence or emotions that each of them house. Let's look at some of the differences between the heart and the brain, how they function and what their nature is. The first thing about the heart is that it is never still. It is constantly moving, which is the pumping, the pumping and contracting of the heart. So it's or the easing and the contracting of the heart. So it's basically reach out and then go back to a relaxed position. The brain doesn't physically move. It's still. 
Yes, the, the brain sends out neuro impulses that make the whole body work, but the physical brain doesn't move. Number two. The heart is described as the softest of all organs, even softer than the brain. As the Zohar says, The Zohar calls it soft and weak. Now you don't think of the heart as weak, right? Think of it as this powerful muscle that's able to do so much. But there's a certain softness about it, the ability to collapse, to relax, to allow the blood to flow back in. These two things, these two factors, the softness of the heart and the constant movement of the heart, are interrelated. Why is the heart, so to speak, soft and weak? Because it's not there for itself. Its entire existence is only to service the body. It's a pump to service the body. It doesn't have the sophistication of the brain that can have imagination and critical thinking and lateral thinking. It's just a pump to service the body, make sure the body is alive. It has no other purpose other than to keep the body alive. That's why it's always got a pump. Which illustrates that its entire purpose is to keep the body alive. And that's why it's a so-called weaker organ. Because it doesn't exist for itself. It exists for all the other parts of the body. Compare that to the brain. The brain sits at the top, kind of aloof. It doesn't get enmeshed in the body. It doesn't send out blood and then get that blood back. It sends impulses which are non-tangible in a sense. Yes, the brain is the source of all function and life in the body. But the brain stays distinct. Which tells you that the brain has a certain independence. It's just that from this epicenter of nerves, this of, of neuroimpulses, then you can send something out to the body. Send a message to the body. Hey, move that hand. Not like the blood that actually is the heart that actually takes blood in, pumps blood out, takes it back in, pumps it back out. For that reason, that's why the brain physically doesn't move because it's distinct from the whole reality of the body. It's not so pliable. It's not so malleable like the heart is. It's its own entity. That's why we compare the king, Dafka, to the heart. Because the king will have these two characteristics that we've identified belong to the heart. Number one, constantly engaging the people, like the heart, constantly pumping, constantly seeing, what do you need? Let me go back. Find a resource, come up with a plan, give it back to you, in, out, engage, disengage, constantly with the people. Because the theme of being a king is servicing the people. That's why the king has a certain weakness slash 
flexibility compared to anyone else in the community. Anyone else in the community is self-sufficient. Go out, make a living. And the king depends on others. Now this distinction we've made between the two organs, the brain and the heart, will obviously play out in the two types of function that they provide for the body. Intelligence, intellect is in the brain. And subjective responses, which you and I call emotions, live in the heart. So in order for the intellect to work, it has to remain aloof. In order for emotions to work, they have to engage. The nature of intellect, if you really want to understand something, is you have to remain objective. You have to remain a little bit removed and aloof. Because if you mix in your own preconceptions and bias, you won't understand the concept. You'll understand what you want to understand. As long as a person has a bias and it is somehow that the understanding will be linked to their existing understanding, that is a form of bribery. That will corrupt a person's understanding and they won't understand the idea properly. But the entire concept, on the other hand, of midos is to feel. The definition of midos is my feeling towards this thing as I feel it inside me. Because I'm invested. I'm invested in that thing. Which is why I feel close and connected, love, or I feel repulsed and upset, fear. So that will help us to understand the, these different characteristics that we have identified with the brain versus the heart as we are seeing now the intellect versus the emotions. The whole purpose of midos is movement, feeling like the heart. There's movement, there's some kind of energy Whereas the brain needs quiet. Intellect needs calm. Can't be all over the place. Let me think this through. Let me understand it. Number two. A key principle. Midois are not designed to be consistent. They are designed to be malleable. Today I'm happy. Yesterday I wasn't necessarily happy. Hey, today you feel this way, tomorrow you feel the next way. Whereas intellect doesn't change. It's either correct or it's not correct. It's either factual or it's not factual. Either makes sense or doesn't make sense. When you reach the point that you can intellectually accept something as a truth, then it's solid and can't change. With this information, we can understand the primary differences between being a melech and being a nasi. The king whose entire focus and purpose is to serve the nation and therefore he's keyed into the nation and he's like, he's enmeshed in their reality. 
compared to the heart that has to pump into every single part of the body what it needs. So his job is not the objective position of ruling what's the halacha in a case. The back and forth. To ensure that you arrive at the correct intellectual halachic conclusion. It's not a space because he's with the people. If you're engaging with the people, then you're not the right person to step back and say, what does the law book say without consideration for the perspective or the feelings of the people? Dafka Hanosi. Dafka the Nasi, because he's distinct and aloof from the community. Therefore, it's his job to be their head, their brain, their intellectual guide. So, He's the perfect one who can share. This is what the Torah says. It's not open to opinion. It's not open to feeling. This is what the Torah correctly, objectively says. That's a Nasi. That's why we call the Nasi everything, even the Nasi dimension within the king, everything. What does that mean? Because the brain controls the heart, directs the heart, makes sure the heart pumps. The king has to have a law framework within which he operates. And it's got to be beyond him. He cannot be the one to determine the law by which he lives. Again, major distinction between the Jewish and the regular perspective of a monarch. The job of the heart is to take what the brain has prepared and share it with the rest of the body, to take what the Sanhedrin has ruled and to effect it, roll it out in the community. As we see, plainly speaking, this is the role of a king. That his job is to take whatever the Torah has guided and directed and ensure that the people can live by it. That's why the king has to show unusual respect, dafka, to Torah scholars. Think how radical this is. If a member of the Sanhedrin enters the throne room, the king has to stand out of respect to them because they are the brain's trust and they are the ones who contain the validity and the authenticity of Torah. And the king's job is then to convey that and ensure that the country lives up to those standards. So what's a king? One who cares for and runs the country in the best way possible. What's a nasi? One who guides in the most authentic way possible. Now that's ordinary king versus ordinary Nasi. Let's look at Moshe Rabbeinu. He's a unique personality. It's actually about Moshe Rabbeinu that Rashi used the expression, the Nasi is everything, because there's something unique about him. What was unique about Moshe Rabbeinu? He had both. He had the intelligence the intellectual approach, teacher of Torah, ultimate head of Sanhedrin. And he had the heart approach, king who's going to take the Jews through all of the travails of leaving Mitzrayim, living in the Midbar, getting to Yisrael. We know that Moshe was a king, the Torah tells us so. And we know that he was responsible for everything that the Jews needed, even very physical things, some of which he couldn't initially relate to. So he's their heart. 
Not only was he a king par excellence, but he was also the practical head of the Sanhedrin. Not only was he the Nasi of a Sanhedrin at a time in history, but he becomes the Nasi, the core, the head, the supreme spiritual leader of all generations. The Kandi of Hashem's Torah into this world. He's the one who taught Torah, received it from Hashem, gave it to all the people. So he is the heart and mind of the Jewish people. The same will happen with Moshiach. He'll be a unique leader. That's why we say Moshe is both the first and the last redeemer, meaning same qualities, same role, same character. He'll also have both sides. Of course, Mashiach is going to be a king, the ultimate king, the best king, the paragon king. And at the same time, he'll be the ultimate teacher. He will teach Torah to every single person, as the Rambam says, to the simplest Jew and even to the Avois and Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshiach, they synthesize both realities, the Nasi brain reality to teach what Torah says in its most pristine form, and the King Lev reality to care for the people in the most benevolent way. That's who Moshe was, that's who Moshiach will be. We should be zoiche to see that ultimate composite of King and Nasi with the coming of Moshiach now.